Hey, hey, welcome in to Next Man Up. I'm Cody Gwynn. We got a great show for you here on this Friday the 13th. Full moon's out. Sorry about that. Anyways, show tonight. We're going to talk all things college football. We're going to talk all things week two of the NFL season. Also, we're going to go in detail about UFC Fight Night Vancouver, including Cowboy against Gagey. And the big thing today, what in the world is wrong with Tennessee football? We'll talk about the big orange breakdown going on in Knoxville. That's all coming up next here on Next Man Up. From the CTBL studio in East Tennessee, we discuss all sports. From football to baseball, basketball to MMA, wrestling to ping pong, and everything in between. No hot takes. No experts. Just sports talk by sports fans for sports fans. It's the Next Man Up podcast with your host, Cody Gwynn. Next Man Up is on the air. Cody Gwynn here with you. And before we get to your opening drive and start talking about all things sports, I want to let you know that I'm looking for people who want to talk sports. Necessarily, I mean, I guess you could call it a co-host, but probably more is just someone who joins in here and there to talk about whatever they want to talk about, whether you're a baseball fan, basketball fan, football fan, MMA fan, wrestling fan, whatever sport you like, whatever sport you want to talk about, let me know. Send me a message on Twitter at Cody underscore Gwen. You can also message us and send a voice message on the Anchor app. Be sure to like and subscribe. We got our we got the podcast now on Spotify. It is also on the Google Store, I believe, the Google Podcast, and still working on Apple, but Apple Podcasts also coming up here very shortly, plus all the other places that have podcasts. I don't even know all of them, but I think we're on there too, but I'll have to check in more detail. But nonetheless, wherever you're listening, appreciate you joining us here today as it's time to start off with one of the biggest fights of the year and a fight you don't want to miss. If you like two guys who will just stand in front of each other and trade haymakers, knees, elbows, big kicks, we got a treat for you this weekend over in Vancouver. The opening drive takes us to UFC Fight Night, Cowboy versus Gagey. Put it in gear. It's time for the opening drive on Next Man Up. All right, it's time for the opening drive as we take things to Vancouver and to the UFC as we preview what's going to be an amazing fight card on Saturday, headlined by one of the must-see fights, maybe of all, of 2019. As this weekend, UFC Vancouver comes to ESPN+, Plus, a fight night card featuring a lightweight main event between two of the must-see fighters in all the UFC, and they have been really since one of them got there and since the other began fighting back in the WEC, it's Justin Gagey and Donald Cerrone. Before we get to a prediction, we'll just look at a little tell-the-tape stuff here. For Donald Cerrone, you look at his last few fights. He is 3-2. and two. He had that loss against Leon Edwards, and it was really Leon Edwards' coming-out party in Singapore back in June of 2018. Before that, it was a big TKO win against Yancey Medeiros for Cowboy Cerrone. Then had that big fight against Mike Perry. A lot of people thought that was a fight Mike Perry would show off in, but it was the armbar finish for Donald Cerrone. And then the passing of the torch fight as Donald Cerrone drops back down to 155, a weight cut that he had been very adamant about, not wanting to cut a lot of weight, was tired of it, felt it was deteriorating his body, nonetheless does come back to 155 and puts on a show against Alex Hernandez, who was really looked at as one of the next big striking prospects at 155. Head kick, finished up with some nasty punches, some brutal ground and pound in January of 2019, and Cowboy beats Hernandez. And then in maybe one of the most impressive fights of Donald Cerrone's career, picks apart Ally Aquina in May in Canada, goes in there and just looks outstanding in that headlining fight back in May of this year and beats Aquina by a five-round unanimous decision. And he's coming off a loss, but he's coming off a loss to arguably the best uncrowned champion in the UFC and maybe in UFC history in Tony Ferguson. And that was a fight Cowboy had a lot of fight left in him. He was losing the fight, but there was just a lot left in Cowboy, but his eye got badly damaged, swelled up bad, looked like it was a broken orbital bone. I actually don't think it was as serious as that, but that was in June. Ferguson gets the TKO via, via doctor's stoppage in a fight of the night. You look at Cowboy, he's been in three straight fight of the nights and has won four straight post-fight awards. Performance of the night against Mike Perry, performance of the night against Alex Hernandez, fight of the night against Ferguson, Iaquinta, and Hernandez. 
back to back to back. When you look at what he's done in terms of of the night, six fight of the nights, three knockout of the night, two submission of the night, and seven performance of the nights, he does have the most wins and most finishes in USC history. That is a Hall of Fame resume, and it's even more impressive when you think that it's a Hall of Fame resume without ever winning USC gold. Let's flip gears to Justin Gagey. He did win gold, but it was in another promotion. He's the former World Series of Fighting champion, and that was a promotion that was on the rise and then got changed over to a new name, and now they're doing the tournament showdowns all the time. They have changed their name to the Professional Fighters League, but at one time, the World Series of Fighting was one of the top three promotions in the world. Justin Gagey was the lightweight champion there, defended the title five times. He had a 10-fight winning streak, won so many fights in World Series of Fighting, they were losing guys to put him up against, and he dominated guys, winning by TKO, leg kicks, knocking guys out, Dr. Stoppage. He was putting on a show against everyone, beat guys like Jay-Z Calicante, Dan Lozon, Nick Newell, Melvin Gillard, just to name a few while in World Series. Now look at Justin Gagey in the UFC. Five fights, starting with the Ultimate Fighter finale against Michael Johnson. Those guys go absolute battle. Gotta remember, Michael Johnson's always sort of played that role of spoiler in big fights. Has a knockout win over Dustin Poirier. But nonetheless, just too much pressure from Justin Gagey. And Gagey ends up getting the finish with a TKO with punches and knees and everything else in between. A big win there. Fight of the night, performance of the night. And that will be a theme of the career so far of Justin Gagey. Moves on to fight Eddie Alvarez in a huge showdown in December of 2017 in Detroit. These guys go back and forth. Gagey again nearly knocks out Alvarez numerous times with big strikes. But Alvarez lands the perfectly placed knee. In his whole career, Justin Gagey said he fought in a manner that was almost kill or be killed. And he got got by Mr. Alvarez. A knockout for Alvarez winning that fight. He moved on in April to fight Dustin Poirier in another great showdown and another fight of the night. A reminder, he won fight of the night against Alvarez as well. And then had a fight of the night against Dustin Poirier. Went to town on Poirier's legs. Some of the prettiest leg kicks you've ever seen. But Poirier just decided, look, I'm going to eat these leg kicks and I'm going to throw punches behind them. So it was the monster leg kicks against the straights and massive hooks from Poirier. End up getting Dustin Poirier the victory there. A fourth round TKO in Glendale, Arizona. But again, another fight of the night. So Gagey, who was 18-0, comes off two straight losses, knocks out James Vicks and Edson Barbosa, back-to-back first-round knockouts and back-to-back of the night winnings for Justin Gagey. So in five fights, he won performance of the night twice and fight of the night four times, if that tells you anything about the style of the highlight. Now let's look at the matchup overall, because it's going to be a fantastic fight between two guys who are known for doing a little bit of everything. Gagey's got a wrestling background, which is how he's been able to stay up on his feet against guys who have attempted to take him down. But he has relentless pressure. You just don't have a lot of room to strike back with him and work your plan. Now, you can brawl with Justin Gagey. He welcomes that, and that'll be the key thing in the Cowboy fight. Will these two get in an absolute brawl? For Cowboy, he's gotten to some brawls before, but he's also not always won those kind of style of fights. When you look at Cerrone's career and some of the brawl-style fights he's had, you got to look back at the fights with Tony Ferguson most recently. Just trading elbows, knees, and Ferguson gets the better of it. You look at the battle against guys like Jorge Masvidal and the battle with guys all the way back against Nate Diaz. and our, Again, that was 2011, and Cowboy has changed a lot since then. But in these absolute brawl-style fights, they've not always favored Cowboy, but they've not, they've not always favored Justin Gagey as Gagey has got hit with huge shots, and that's just the way he fights. We're not going to see a big game plan change from Justin Gagey. I just don't think that's in his repertoire. He's go, He goes forward, pressure fighting, puts all the attack on you, will mix in some knees and elbows, but Cowboy will be the one who dictates the way this fight goes. We've seen him switch things up. This is a five-round main event fight. Gets Aquina, we've seen him take on Al and use his distance early. He didn't dominate that fight early. He dominated that fight late. Third, fourth, and fifth round was all Cowboy. Just absolutely picked him apart. He read what Aliquina was doing, then used his motion, used his range, started picking him apart. By the third, fourth, and fifth round, it was all Cowboy. You could argue that fifth round should have been a 10-8 for Cowboy, the way he dominated. And that's really a different style for Cowboy. Seeing him come on late 
was something we not seen from him in a while. Before that, we've seen a second-round finish of Hernandez, the first-round armbar of Mike Perry, and we've seen him fade a little bit against Leon Edwards in that five-round fight at welterweight. So it'll be interesting to see what Cowboy does here. Does he want to use his range? Does he want to brawl? And I think that'll dictate how the face goes. For a prediction in the fight, I really think Justin Gagey is going to have a little bit too much pressure for the 37-year-old Donald Cerrone. He has been tagged in all his last few fights. Ferguson damaged that eye, rocked him a few times. Aliquena had some moments in their fight where he looked really good, especially early on. And that's the thing, Gagey's pressure does not stop. Now, Gagey will fade. If this fight goes second, third, fourth round, he will fade a little bit. He's not a five-round style fighter. If you look at all his championship fights, starting all the way back in Hollywood, Florida, in January of 2014, when he first fought for the World Series lightweight title, all those fights have been scheduled for five rounds. He has never went past a minute in the fourth round. So there you go about the way Justin Gagey fights. He has said it time and time again. I actually believe he said it at the workout just the other day before this fight that someone is getting knocked out. And Justin Gagey has always been very adamant that it could be him. And that's what makes him must-see TV. This will be a great fight. You don't want to miss it. Cowboy Cerrone, Justin Gagey really fighting for who could be next in that lightweight division. You have to assume Tony Ferguson will be fighting Khabib for the title at some point in time, but there's still a lot of big names. The winner of this fight could potentially also be a big name to stand out for someone like a Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor already talking about fighting guys like Khabib. Dustin Poirier recently caught out Conor McGregor. But in terms of a matchup that makes sense for Conor McGregor, you would have to think the winner of this fight would make a ton of sense for McGregor to fight the winner of Justin Gagey and Donald Cerrone, two guys he has no real history with in terms of inside the octagon, but two guys that have made it very clear that they would love to fight Conor McGregor. Gagey even making it personal here over the build-up to this fight with Cowboy, referring to him on Twitter and saying some just awful things about him. Cowboy, not so much in that kind of attack, but has said very clearly, look, either get in here and fight or stop talking about it. I think there's a good chance the winner of this fight will really make sense for a Conor McGregor comeback matchup. you got to remember that McGregor hasn't won a fight in a few years. I don't think he wants to come back and immediately fight Khabib. I don't think that's what the UFC wants, is for him to come back and immediately fight Khabib. So that could really be what this fight is. This could be for the fight Conor McGregor championship, if you will, since we're creating titles now for big fights. That's just your headlining fight. That's 10 minutes all about your main event. Uh, the card isn't necessarily stacked. It's really top-heavy in terms of the main event. Glover Teixeira is fighting Nikita Krylov, uh, which uh, is a pretty good light heavyweight fight. Krylov, who has had a great run. He's still just 27 years old. I feel like he's been in the UFC for a long, long time. He is 7-4 and four in his UFC career, but he is 10-2 and two in his last 12 overall fights, and he did win a lot outside the octagon, but he has... A very unique skill set. He can throw head kicks from different angles. He's not afraid to stand and strike. You wonder if Glover Teixeira is still in his prime, so to speak, 39 years old. We've seen him get rocked and taken out a few times. I can see Krylov really landing some nice shots and finishing Glover. If I didn't, I actually think I talked about my prediction and then didn't make it for the Cerrone-Gagey fight. I see Gagey's pressure being too much. I think Justin Gagey finishes Donald Cerrone late second round. That is my prediction on the Cowboy-Justin Gagey fight. Second round, late finish for the highlight Justin Gagey, and he gets on that microphone, and he lets Conor McGregor know what's next. I also think Nikita Krylov wins the fight by first round TKO against Glover Teixeira. The other fight on the card, Todd Duffy and Jeff Hughes. Todd Duffy in the media a lot for calling out the media, so to speak, and unhappy about some of the way things have gone of late in his career. You talk about a guy who is portrayed as the next big thing. And then it all just went downhill so fast. Jeff Hughes, a newcomer to the UFC. He is going to be in there taking on a tough opponent. But this is a longtime training partner of Stipe Miocic. So he's in there with guys who throw forward punches. Stipe, that's the way he trains. That's the way he fights. Comes forward, comes forward, comes forward. So you have to imagine that this won't really throw off the game plan too much of Jeff Hughes with the way Todd Duffy attacks. Be interested to see what Todd Duffy does I think Todd Duffy comes in here and is very aggressive, and I think it works against him. I think this is going to be a little bit of an upset win for Jeff Hughes. I'm picking Jeff Hughes by a late finish, possibly second or third round TKO 
Fort Hughes. You move up the card, you have a bunch of other fights that are going to be fun to watch. I'm going to focus in on one undercard fight here, and that's Antonio Carlos Jr. against Uriah Hall. Again, you want to talk about a guy who is portrayed as the next big name. Uriah Hall was just that, and he just really can't find consistency. Both these guys are ranked which is interesting, but again, it's an interesting fight. One of the top grapplers in the world, Carlos Jr., is on a five-fight winning streak, but then it was snapped after returning from a 13-month layoff. He dropped a decision to Ian Heinitz. Now a looking to kind of get back in rhythm is Carlos Jr. He didn't look great in that last fight. And for Uriah Hall, again, he's still one of the most dangerous strikers in all the UFC. He's coming off that third-round knockout against Bevan Lewis, which was really almost a fight that was a mismatch in terms of Hall and Lewis. But he's won two out of his last three after a three-fight losing streak. So again, this is a big fight for both these men. It's a big fight mostly for Uriah Hall, as you would like to see him sort of get back in a swing of things and on a little bit of a winning streak, potentially match him up with some of those fantastic strikers at 185 pounds. Uriah Hall recently actually sort of called out both Robert Whitaker and Israel Adesanya, saying that he feels like Whitaker will likely get hurt and that he'd be all for fighting Adesanya. Again, that's a fun little fight. So you like to see Ryan Hall go on a win streak and possibly have a little bit of a case to get a fight like that against someone in the top 10 of the middleweight division. Misha Serkinov, Jimmy Crute kicks off that main card at 8 o'clock on ESPN+. That's a real underrated fight, so to speak, as we've seen Serkinov do some big things in his career. But Crute, a great prospect, especially at 205 pounds. He is 10-0 and and really looks like a guy who could move up quickly in that 205 division. We've seen a lot of guys do it. Right now, all the talks on Johnny Walker moving up just real quick in a division that's kind of going through a little bit of a change. You still got John Jones at the top. You don't really know what's after him. A big win by anyone who has a good record can propel them from being a prospect to a title contender. So I really like what Jimmy Crute could do in the fight against Misha Serkinov. Remember, that kicks off the main card. ESPN Plus on Saturday... That's going to be September 14th, depending on when you're listening to this. Again, this is a main event you don't want to miss. Cowboy, Gagey, that's going to be a monster fight, UFC Vancouver. I can't wait to see it. I'm going to watch the whole thing, but I definitely can't wait to see that main event between two of the, again, most must-see fighters in the UFC. So many people talk about super fights, and I look at a super fight, and when I think of that word, I think, man, I cannot miss this fight. And there's only a few guys who I consider must-see in the UFC that's guys like John Jones, guys like Conor McGregor, guys like Justin Gagey, guys like Cowboy Cerrone, guys also like Nate Diaz. I don't want to miss the Nate Diaz fight, but those are the names when I think super fights. And you could talk about a lot of other names there I'm not mentioning, but you get two of those must-see guys in a five-round lightweight fight, in a high-stakes lightweight fight, in a division right now where there's a lot of changes going on. We'll see what happens with Tony Ferguson and Khabib Nurmagomedov and also the dark horse the wild card Conor McGregor what he wants to do in the future this could be a big fight so there's just a little preview of UFC fight night Vancouver Cowboy versus Gagey Saturday September 14th Vancouver cannot wait for it and we got y'all hyped up and now we're going to talk about sad things as coming up we're just going to kind of talk a little conversation about what has happened what is wrong with Tennessee football Stay tuned. That's coming up next on Next Man Up. Nobody wins when everyone's losing. It's like one step forward and two steps back. No matter what I do, you're always mad. And I, I can't change your mind. Now it's like trying to turn around on a one-way street. I can't give you what you want and it's killing me. Welcome back to Next Man Up. I'm Cody Gwynn. And our main segment, we're just looking back at what's going on with Tennessee football. And again, I live in East Tennessee. I'm about an hour and a half away from Knoxville. Grew up watching the Tennessee Vols over many years. And still to this day, a big Tennessee Vol fans. At my regular job, I give away Tennessee football tickets for every home game throughout the season. And it's easy to say that this year they've been a bit harder to give away. Because Tennessee football has really struggled and... Tennessee's got a new head coach. He's only been there now 
one year, one full year. This is his second season for Jeremy Pruitt. And for Coach Pruitt, it starts way before him. So again, I'll talk about Coach Pruitt a little bit more in here in a bit. But I just want to start off by saying that I know as head coach of any sports team in today's sports world, so to speak, it always comes back on the head coach. And that's okay. Making a lot of money, that's usually just how it works. It's almost like being the quarterback of a professional team. Even if you're playing well, if your team doesn't win, it comes back on you. And that's just always how it's been. But for Coach Pruitt, this starts way before him. It starts before what happened in the summer of 2018. you got to go all the way back to Derek Dooley almost and how everything happened with Derek Dooley. And he gets brought in again. I think everybody immediately knew he just wasn't the right guy. But you needed somebody, and you needed somebody fast after what happened with the whole Lane Kiffin situation, leaving quickly, almost in the middle of the night, to head to USC. You get someone in here like Derek Dooley, and you just see what Derek does over his first few years. 6-7 in 2010, 5-7 in 5-7-2011, and doesn't make it all the way through 2012, even though at one point in time ranked at number 23, had a lot of potential. Jim Chaney ends up finishing out that season. You go from him to Butch Jones, and Butch Jones, a very hyped-up coach, just said all the right things. I'll give him that. He said the right things. Hey, Butch Jones was 3-0 and in bowls. Again, people love throwing Butch Jones under the bus. Butch Jones was here too long in Knoxville, but I still am not just sold that he was absolutely the worst thing that's ever happened to Tennessee football. Butch Jones went 5-7 and that first year, 7-6 and the next year, back-to-back 9-4 and seasons, even in 2016, had the team ranked at number 9 after wins over Florida and Georgia, and just some magic happening for the Tennessee Volunteers in that amazing 2016 season. But here's the thing that happened to Butch Jones. He ended up going 4-6 and in 2017, fired last two games. We were coached by Brady Hoke, of all people. Tennessee... The biggest complaint with Butch Jones was that he just didn't utilize talent correctly. And you look at some of the guys, and I mean, even myself, a big sports guy who loves to focus in on individual players and rosters for every single team, but even me sometimes watching a game on Thursday night football or Sunday night football where they really highlight the starters and the roster, I hear people and players say Tennessee so much, and I go, what? You played at UT. And I look back, and a lot of these guys didn't start. Didn't get a lot of playing time, especially when he started even going deeper and looking at guys who transferred. Some of the guys that Butch Jones underutilized completely, you could even start with Josh Dobbs. And Josh Dobbs had a fantastic career at Tennessee, but he could have done more if you would have kept pieces around him. At one point in time, Tennessee could have had one of the greatest receiving corps of all time with guys like Justin Hunter and guys like Derrick Rogers, And then you go to guys like Jalen Hurd, who was a running back but should have been a receiver. Guys like Preston Williams. Guys like Juwan Jennings. All these guys could have been around Josh Dobbs during his tenure. But nonetheless, he still had a great run. Tennessee 3-0 in bowls from 2014 to 2016, winning the Tax Slayer Bowl, Outback Bowl, and Music City Bowl. Again, those aren't big bowl names. But Butch Jones almost will look back, I think Tennessee fans will, and go, he did hurt the program a little bit because he was underutilizing people so much that recruiting started to die down. Players started going, I don't think I'm going to go to Tennessee because I'm just not sold you'll use me the way I want to be used, especially since really since 2013, 2014, underclassmen, freshmen, and sophomores get a lot more playing time than they did, so to say, in 2008, 2009, 2010, especially in the SEC. So Butch Jones is out, and there's this big coaching search. And there's one name that everybody in East Tennessee wants. And that's John Gruden. The Gruden watch. Cameras at airports. People watching what his wife does, what his whole family's doing. And the whole time, John Gruden's trying to get back in the NFL. But Tennessee fans have a way of sort of turning things to their liking. Can fully admit that. And every single time Gruden said anything... People always somehow made it about being interested in the Tennessee job. And all that did was make Tennessee fans not love anyone that walked through them doors at Neyland Stadium and at the University of Tennessee that was not named John Gruden. The coach that was picked was Greg Schiano. Greg Schiano was a coordinator at Ohio State, but had a lot of, just to kind of be simple here, skeletons in the closet. Therefore, Tennessee fans were not, were not with it. They were not feeling it. They did not want him, and they made it known. 
it was not like a team hiring a coach and a couple of people get on Twitter and going, oh man, I'd rather have John Gruden. This was a straight outcry. This was a straight Tennessee fans going everywhere, marching on campus saying, you know, Greg Schiano cannot be the head coach of the University of Tennessee. And then things just get wild. A new athletic director is hired and all sorts of things start changing. And at the time, it was all wonderful. And then it all comes crashing down again. You get Philip Fulmer as the AD, which people had wanted for years. You get Jeremy Pruitt, a coordinator right under Nick Saban, and everything looks glorious. And then Tennessee goes 5-7 and seven and absolutely crumbles at the end of 2018. Falls absolutely apart. One of the end of 2018, the end of that season, really, in my opinion, is the worst the Tennessee Volunteers have looked in years. It was almost one of those things that it hurt to watch at times. Just looking at some of the things that happened at the end of that 2018 season. Losses to Missouri by a final score of 50-17. to That loss at Vanderbilt, 38-13. to And both those teams were not very good. And both those losses just stung, it just, just a, in a different way. Wins that year over Charlotte, Kentucky, Auburn, an upset against Auburn, first big win for Coach Pruitt. Wins over UTEP and wins against East Tennessee State. A big-time loss to West Virginia. Lost to Florida, lost to Georgia, lost to Alabama, lost to South Carolina, heartbreaker there. And then the final losses to Missouri and Vanderbilt, which the team just showed that they weren't getting better at times. They may even be getting worse. But she entered this season with high hopes, thinking that, you know, last season's over. He's had all offseason. He's starting to actually recruit the guys that he wants, that Coach Pruitt wants at the University of Tennessee. And you get to this year with high expectations. And let's be honest, the biggest thing about entering this season was the schedule. The 2019 schedule for the University of Tennessee was set up to really just work in the Vols' favor, a young Tennessee team that could beat Georgia State, that could beat BYU, and that could beat Chattanooga, and go to the Swamp against what would likely be a top 10 ranked Florida team, and go 3-0, and and have all that confidence. Give those young guys, those up-and-comers confidence. Instead, you enter the first two games of SEC play with potential to possibly start the season 1-0. And four. There has been no, no real bright spots. And people who are in Knoxville media and actually work for the Tennessee Volunteers, they'll find the bright spots. They will. But I'm looking at this almost for a casual fan standpoint. Right now, I'm not playing, you know, Super Vol fan. I'm playing the casual fan. There's nothing that you see from Tennessee where you go, well, I mean, there's that. There's nothing. You look at the quarterback situation. Jerry Garantano has yet to not play at quarterback for Tennessee. They've yet to put in any of the backups, any of the young guys to let them come in and get some snaps. They've continuously went with the junior, and he's not played well. 43 of 68, 487, four touchdowns, two picks, but at the end of the day, he has no sense of pocket presence. He is not good at reading the defense. And those are the things. When he makes the throws, when he gets out of the pocket and stuff, he doesn't look bad, but he cannot read a defense, and it's hurt Tennessee so bad. You look back at film, and there's so many openings, especially against a team like Georgia State, who wasn't ready to play a team as athletic and as fast as Tennessee, but nobody on offense took advantage of that. Ty Chandler and Eric Gray, both outstanding runners, both over 100 yards for the season, a combined 300 between them and only one touchdown. Just run the ball. Just continuously run the ball until you can't anymore. Even if on some possessions you run three times and you punt, I'd rather do that instead of letting Garantano throw that ball and sit in that pocket until he's surrounded by six guys and get taken down. Tennessee's defense has a lot of potential, but I honestly thought coming in they wouldn't be a defense that held teams scoreless or anything. A lot of youth, a lot of guys still just get used to everything. I'm not even really going to talk too much about the defense because I think they'll improve. The offense has shown no signs of improvements. No signs. And I think that's where everyone should sort of point fingers here. When you look at receiving numbers, Josh Palmer, Marquez Callaway, I mean, you got some good receivers out there. Juwan Jennings, who is the leader of this team, and you almost wish he would just take the gloves off and play a little quarterback. 
Just go straight RPO mode and put Jennings back there and surround him with Chandler and Gray. Three back set and just go. Brian Maurer is the backup. Maurer is a potential future quarterback of Tennessee. I, I'm sure depending on how things go, he is a freshman. We also have JT Strout on the team. You can make a change. But Tennessee has not. And Coach Pruitt has continuously been supportive of his quarterback. And I'm not saying he's in the wrong there. You probably should never throw your quarterback under the bus. So I never expected Jeremy Pruitt to get in a press conference and say, Garantano has not been playing very well. He will not be our quarterback going forward. That's not the way you handle that situation. But I think coming up on Saturday, you're playing Chattanooga. Chattanooga is a lower level team, a non-major conference team. And I think you go out there, and if Garantano your starter, then he's your starter, and you go with him. But at some point in that game, whether Tennessee's up 10, tied, or down 10, sometime in that game, before garbage time at the end, you got to put your next quarterback in there. you got to put Brian Maurer in there with your regular guys, with Gray, with Chandler, with Jordan, with Jennings, with Palmer, with Callaway, with all of those guys. With Wood Anderson, with that whole offense, with your regular skill positions, with your regular offensive line, and you got to let him go and you got to see what he has. If you don't want to throw him to the Wolves in the Florida game, when Garantano sits in that pocket too long and gets absolutely leveled by some of these future NFL linebackers and linemen that Florida has, and Garantano gets hurt, and the first time we get to see Brian Mauer this season is in the swamp down by 20 then you got to play him in Chattanooga. And you got to play him against Chattanooga in the first quarter. I don't want to see the future quarterback of Tennessee come in when we're beating Chattanooga by 10 or 20. That does nothing for anybody. But I also don't want to see Garantano play this whole game, stack up those numbers, everybody go, oh, wow, look, he can play against a team that's not on Tennessee's level, and then go to Florida and watch him get nervous, sit in that pocket, not read the defense, and get hit. And look, I don't wish nothing bad on Garantano. He's, he seems like a, a nice guy. And again, I, I recognize that he does have some very good skills. He's a highly rated player out of high school. But his pocket presence will likely get him hurt at some point in time against SEC teams. And then you bring in this freshman, Maurer, and, and he's going to not know what to do. Because SEC defense are a lot different than what Chattanooga is going to throw at him. Let him get some snaps against Chattanooga in the first quarter, second quarter, second half, whatever. But we have to see him this weekend. I will point out that actually while doing this part of the video, while making this podcast, Maurer actually tweeted that he's going to need everybody to fill up Neyland Stadium this weekend. So I'm guessing maybe it's already in the works. You start Garantano, he's your junior. He's got a little bit of a leadership quality to him. Just not very good speaking with the media. And again, skill set, outstanding. Very good quarterback skill set. But in terms of reading defense, football IQ, quarterback IQ, I mean, send that guy with Peyton Manning and have Peyton Manning lock him in the basement. Peyton or T. Martin or somebody. But I would love to see Brian Maurer get a a good amount of snaps coming up this weekend. But before we drop this situation, talk about the future. And let's go just absolute worst case scenario. But let's go Chattanooga does something crazy. Chattanooga beats Tennessee on a late field goal. What's everyone doing? Jeremy Pruitt's not the answer. Fire Jeremy Pruitt. That would be the absolute worst thing Tennessee can do. And look, don't get me wrong. You can't lose to Georgia State and Chattanooga, and something has to happen. But I think, in my opinion, making a coaching move at any point in time this season would just absolutely derail the future of Tennessee football. And look, after last weekend, there was one guy on, I believe, Fox who was really adamant. I mean, even you know, puffed out his chest and really hit hard the point that Tennessee's got some of the most outstanding high schools around, some of the most outstanding talent around. And look, I call high school football. I agree. There's some tons of talent just in Knoxville, but throughout the state. This man who was talking so highly about Tennessee high school football and talking about the great culture that the volunteers have and you know their the popularity of their team, the way the fans are, even if their team's 0-1 coming off a bad loss, Neyland was packed and loud against BYU. This man doing all this talking was not some analyst. This was former national championship coach Urban Meyer. And as you can imagine, 
Tennessee Twitter went crazy. Get rid of Jeremy Pruitt today. Give us Urban Meyer. No, 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 no. No. Urban Meyer is not a future coach of the University of Tennessee. A, it just won't happen, I don't think. And I say I don't think because I've seen crazy things happen over the last few years and I will never guarantee anything anymore. But is that who Tennessee fans want? You want a guy who can come in here and possibly fix up the pieces, get you to eight or nine wins, and right when everything looks so good, the sun is fully out, something happens. Whether it's personal with Urban Meyer, whether it's a professional thing, whether it's a violation thing. Urban Meyer is not a coach who extends his stay. Urban Meyer is a guy who leaves you. I don't want a guy that just leaves. And Lane Kiffin was a very, very bright prospect in terms of the Tennessee coaching search. And while, of course, fans and even myself started to sit down and think, well, you know what, Lane's older now. Lane has seen the mistakes that he made years ago. Maybe he is the guy. I would stop myself and go, no, because you don't want a guy that can just leave you in the middle of the night. It would take a team like Alabama, LSU, maybe Auburn, to take Jeremy Pruitt away. And that's one of the things that I think you can't just get rid of Jeremy Pruitt because he's going to go coach somewhere. He might go back and be a coordinator for a few years, but this guy's a football coach. He'll do this until he can't do it anymore. And I think he does have potential. I think he's got a little passion in him, and I think that's why you can't just get rid of him. He's going to figure it out, but it may take a little bit of time. If you're Philip Fulmer, if you're Tennessee Athletics, and if you're fans, it hurts. And I mean, it even hurts to say, and it hurts to watch. And if you don't want to spend money on Tennessee tickets right now, I understand. But you somehow just have to figure out a way to be patient. You have to figure out a way to wait, to let this play out, to see what the future holds when Pruitt gets everyone in here. Right now, he has got one of the best coaching staffs in all of college football. But it's going to take a minute for it to mesh and for everybody to get on the same page. Once that happens, this team I think will really wake up and really find true potential. He recruits well. He's got a great class coming in this year. When I say recruit well, he's not going to get the big-time names, the big-time running backs. He's going to get linemen. He's getting the meat of everything. So look, I'm like all of you. Every Tennessee fan listening to this is rolling their eyes and upset because they want to win now, and they think maybe winning now means getting someone like Urban Meyer. Means making a coaching change and maybe just seeing, you know, put T. Martin in there as the interim coach and see what he can do. He's won here before, but none of those things are the answer. You got to just let it play out. And letting it play out could lead to Tennessee winning two to three games this whole year. But again, a coaching change is not always the answer. And I definitely don't think it's the answer. And to wrap things up, there is one thing that would be the biggest mistake in Tennessee football history. And that is if a coaching change is made and the guy that gets the interim job is someone by the name of Philip Fulmer. Don't get me wrong, he's a legend. Tennessee Hall of Famer. Should go down, if Tennessee ever gets a new stadium, name it after Philip Fulmer. I'm all for it. General Nealon earned the right to have Nealon named after him. But if one day they name another stadium after Philip Fulmer, I'm perfectly fine with it. But at this point, he is not... He is not in position to be the Tennessee interim coach, no matter what anyone says or thinks, even whatever he thinks. And I hope there's people who are not yes men who can look at Coach Philip Fulmer and go, you're the athletic director. You are not in any way, shape, or form in a position to become the interim or next football coach at the University of Tennessee. And I know it hurts him. Of all people that know this culture better than anybody, it's Philip Fulmer. But again, some situations need coaching changes. Some matchups, some relationships just don't work. They just don't mesh. We see it all the time in every single sport. Things that look so pretty on paper. Look at Chip Kelly everywhere he's went. None of those have made sense and none of those have worked. I think Jeremy Pruitt is maybe the right guy for Tennessee. And I say maybe because I don't know for sure yes and I don't know for sure no. And that's why you can't get rid of him. I feel in a major conference, you can only get rid of a coach if you for sure know he is not the right guy. 
no one in Knoxville, two games into his second year, know that Jeremy Pruitt is not the guy. And I hope fans and everyone can be patient and realize that. It's going to take a little time. And by a little time, I don't mean a game or two. I mean another year or two. Now, once he gets his guys all fully in there, maybe the 2020-2021 season, if we lose, if Tennessee's losing to these mid-major teams, the Sun Belt teams and the non-major conference teams, then you got to make the change because he doesn't know how to win. But I'm not convinced that's what's happening here. And I think although Tennessee fans want to win and want a successful football team more than anything, more than anything, they know as well that that's not the answer. To wrap things up, I want to see a lot of Brian Maurer this weekend. And I want Coach Jeremy Pruitt to be the head coach of the Tennessee Volunteers for at least another two years. The answer is not Urban Meyer. The answer is not Philip Fulmer. The answer, I don't think, is changing a coach at all. You use this amazing coaching staff to build, and you need a full year and a full offseason to do that. And that's not even happened yet. The future, I think, is bright for the Tennessee Volunteers. Tomorrow against Chattanooga on Saturday, whatever you're listening to this, against Chattanooga, that game may not be the prettiest. The Florida, the Alabama, the Georgia, those games will likely not be pretty. But the future, I think, looks good for the Tennessee Volunteers. But it might take a little bit. So let's be patient. Let's sit back, relax, just kind of grind our teeth, get mad on Twitter, and let this play out. Let's not have another coaching change. Let's not have another Greg Schiano event. And that's how we'll step off the soapbox and let it rest for Tennessee football. We're going fast break next. Just a quick preview of things coming up on week three of the college football season now, week two of the NFL season, before we wrap things up here on Next Man Up. Stay tuned. Fast break starts next. He breaks free and dunks it home. Here's the fast break on Next Man Up. It's fast break time. We're running through quick previews of college football week three, NFL week two, and we start with the amateur athletes who aren't getting paid, at least not yet, California schools. Some of the big games coming up this weekend, we're all excited for Penn State and Pittsburgh. That's longtime rivals in the 100th meeting of the two schools, but this is the last scheduled meeting between them. We'll have to wait a little bit before they can schedule another meeting. Uh, Penn State currently ranked number 13. We'll see if Pittsburgh comes out and has anything for them, but last year Penn State... Outscored Pittsburgh 37-0 in the second half and won the game by 45. But rivalry, you never know how things go, especially when it's the last meeting. A lot of energy there. 12 o'clock Saturday, ABC, Penn State and Pittsburgh. Ohio State back in action as they take on Indiana. We'll see what Justin Fields has in store. We really like watching him play. He's become one of those quarterbacks you want to keep your eye on, especially when you start thinking about postseason accolades. Ohio State, Indiana, 12 o'clock Saturday, that game on Fox. Alabama hits the road for their first SEC game as they go to South Carolina. Now, South Carolina is not a big-time SEC team. They have an all-new starting quarterback after theirs gets hurt. Tua Tagovailoa, over 560 passing yards, seven touchdowns, yet to throw an interception this season. You would expect Alabama to win that game big, but as we mentioned earlier, in terms of rivalry games and whenever you're on the road, always got to keep your eye out. Alabama, South Carolina, 3.30 Saturday on CBS. USC and BYU, Tennessee fans, you got a good look at what BYU can do, especially when all hope is lost. USC has got a brand new quarterback, but he looked pretty good in his first start against a ranked Stanford team. Looking forward to seeing how that game goes, and it's on the road. USC is at BYU. Early start for the West Coast game, 4 o'clock Saturday on ABC, USC and BYU. We mentioned there is some rivalry games going on. Iowa at Iowa State. That's where college game day is going to be for the Cyhawk Trophy on the line between number 19 Iowa and Iowa State. Iowa's got such an impressive defense and they are aggressive, can get to the quarterback. That's just going to be a big game. Always love big rivalry games and the Cyhawk Trophy, one of the best rivalry games, especially over the Midwest. That's a 4 o'clock start time Saturday on FS1. SEC fans, you get a big matchup. Florida at Kentucky. Florida really looked much better last week. Uh, Felipe Franks looked much, much better than he has in his first couple starts. He goes on the road to play at Kentucky. And look, Florida won 31 in a row against Kentucky until last year when Kentucky picked up a big win over Florida, a 26-17 win. 
Kentucky was much better last year, though, than I think they are this year. Kentucky's not beat Florida twice in a row since the mid-70s. We'll see what happens on Saturday. 7 o'clock start time for Florida at Kentucky. And the big game on the schedule, it is Clemson at Syracuse. Syracuse was a ranked team, had a lot of high expectations before Maryland absolutely throttled them in week two and hung 650 yards on them. And Maryland beats them by 43 still yet. It was just two years ago, Clemson on the road at Syracuse gets upset. We'll see what happens this time around. I think Clemson may have a little revenge on their mind, even as the number one team in the nation. And Trevor Lawrence and company will look to pick up massive win on the road at Syracuse. That's just some of the big games to watch as Clemson takes on Syracuse. There's a lot more games going on this weekend that are going to be fun to watch. A couple Friday games, which if you're listening to this, it's either Friday or Saturday probably, or any other day. Some other games on the schedule. Chattanooga at Tennessee. You want to watch that one. 12 o'clock Saturday at SEC. Tennessee trying not to go to 0-3. Oklahoma State at Tulsa. Also Miami back in action as they look for their first win as they take on an FCS team, Texas A&M, also looking for a big win on the road. Just a couple teams that need wins coming up this weekend. So a big weekend of college football actions. We jump over to the NFL side of things, and we'll talk a little bit about that Thursday night game coming up as we wrap up the entire show. But let's look at some things going on in week number two of the NFL season, including the big game on the schedule, and that is New Orleans and the L.A. Rams. 425 kickoff on Fox. You got to look at what the Saints and the Rams offense are both capable of. Jared Goff did not have a great week one. You still want to see if he can come out and play a little bit better, especially against a team that can put up points in a hurry. New Orleans and Houston was in a shootout on Monday Night Football, a little bit of a short week for the Saints. Will that affect them as they head into Los Angeles? That'll be a fun game. New Orleans and the Rams, and oh yeah, don't forget, it's a rematch of the most controversial playoff game really since New England and Oakland in 2001. The Saints and the Rams, you know New Orleans will want just a little bit of revenge for everything that happened last year in the playoffs. Saints and Rams, the big game on the schedule. Some of the early games going on. Minnesota and Green Bay renewed their rivalry. 1 o'clock start time on Fox. Packers really took them a while to get going against Chicago. They've had a long week to prepare, over a week to prepare for Minnesota, who showed off a very good run game. And their week one win. Looking forward to Minnesota and Green Bay. Seattle and Pittsburgh. Man, Pittsburgh did not look good against the New England Patriots. They got a lot of things to work on. You know they like to come out and make a statement against Seattle. Pittsburgh looking for Big Ben to really get on a roll after he just really had nothing against New England. Seattle, though, still got Russell Wilson. Still have some threats on the outside. And a nice running game here this year. We'll see what happens for Pittsburgh. They do not want to start the year 0-2. They'll look to rebound against Seattle. Look, man, is Dallas for real? It's the Giants, so we don't want to go all Super Bowl crazy just yet. But Dallas now goes to Washington. They renew their rivalry. We'll see what Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, what they all got going for them as they take on Washington that will star Adrian Peterson. We'll see if he can turn back the clock just a little bit. As it will be Dallas at Washington, 1 o'clock start time on Fox. 49ers and Bengals play 1 o'clock on Fox. We've seen Cincinnati look outstanding in Week 1. They just couldn't finish the job and get the win. 49ers, they did get the win. That'll be a fun game to watch, see if Cincinnati is really an elite offense this year because San Francisco does not have a great defense. So if Cincinnati can have a week like they did in Week 1, this may be a big first win for the Cincinnati Bengals under Andy Dalton and 36-year-old coach Zach Taylor looking for his first win. The Chargers against the Lions, 1 o'clock on CBS. Another game, Colts at the Titans. They renew their rivalry. Remember, the Titans have really struggled against Indianapolis in the Andrew Luck era. We'll see if Tennessee can really just keep things going after that massive win against Cleveland in Week 1. Colts played well, just couldn't get the job done last week in their first game. We'll see if they can come back and get a big win, number 1 of the year. 1 o'clock, CBS, Indianapolis, and Tennessee. Patriots and the Dolphins. If you want to watch that game, you may turn it off fairly quickly. New England is favored by nearly 20 last time I checked that. And it'll be interesting to see if Antonio Brown is in uniform and if he plays with Tom Brady and company. 
1 o'clock CBS start time. Buffalo against the New York Giants. Arizona against Baltimore. Is Lamar Jackson going to have another big game? Is Kyler Murray going to build off what he did in the overtime game against Detroit? Jacksonville and Houston, two AFC North teams still looking to build. We'll see what happens with the Jaguars quarterback situation. While Houston really is the top 0-1 team you'd have to think in football with how well they played against New Orleans but couldn't get it done on Monday. Again, Jacksonville, no Nick Foles in that game. Texans will have DeAndre Hopkins, but he also battling some rib injuries from his opening big-time game against New Orleans. Other matchups on your schedule that do include Kansas City and Oakland, to 1-0 teams. Is Oakland going to use that momentum from their Monday night win against the Super Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes? Will it be Chicago and Denver, 425 start time? Chicago's defense really need their offense to play a little bit better. Chicago may have the best defense in the league and may not even finish this season with a winning record. Denver also had high expectations behind that defense, and they started the season on one as well. Two teams who definitely would like a win in that matchup. And then Sunday Night Football, the Eagles and the Falcons. That's a nice little rivalry game there. Atlanta maybe one of the biggest letdown teams in Week 1 with how Matt Ryan and that offense played. They'll look to rebound against the Philadelphia Eagles, led by Carson Wentz and company. That game, NBC, 8-20 kickoff time, Sunday night football. And on Monday night, you get Cleveland and you get the New York Jets. Cleveland needs to rebound. They need a win. Everyone talked about them all offseason, and now everyone's just not talking about them. While the Jets, they won't have their starting quarterback as Sam Darnold's got a little mono. Le'Veon Bell's got a shoulder injury that's got checked out. He says he's good to go. So we'll see what the Jets rely on as they take on Cleveland. That's likely to look to make a loud statement. Be on the lookout for Baker Mayfield, Odell Beckham Jr. and company to look to just get off early and often as they take on the New York Jets. Monday Night Football, 815 on ESPN. That is your Week 2 Fast Break of the NFL season. Coming up, we get the victory formation. We wrap up this episode as we stay with the NFL and we look at some teams maybe already starting to plan for the future in terms of future quarterbacks. That's coming up next as we wrap things up. The victory formation next on Next Man Up. Line up. Good game, everybody. It's time for the victory formation with Cody Gwynn. A next man up. We wrap things up here on Next Man Up with the victory formation. And what I'm looking at is NFL and the quarterback situation for many teams and starting to get the feeling that some teams are already looking to potentially get the next big quarterback in future drafts. And I say that because it doesn't necessarily mean this upcoming draft. It could even be later than that. We're going to start with this year's draft, though. We're looking at some of the teams like Miami like Tampa Bay, like Carolina, who neither one of their quarterbacks really shined too brightly in that Thursday night matchup for either one of those teams. Both guys have gotten hit a lot more than they like to. Jameis Winston had an awful week one. Cam Newton's had an awful week two. You look at teams like Washington, we learned with Arizona this past year, just because you drafted a quarterback the year before, they may not be the one you really want. So you still got to look at some different teams such as the New York Giants. If Daniel Jones doesn't work out there, especially in two years, what happens in that situation? Other teams, you think about who maybe have future quarterbacks who are getting older, Pittsburgh Steelers. I know people will roll their eyes when I say this, but even teams like the New England Patriots, when do they start looking at some of these future quarterbacks and start kind of getting the googly eyes for them? Tua Tagovailoa at Alabama, a 6-1-2-18 prospect who is just... So intelligent with the football, he doesn't make a lot of mistakes. If you take out especially the national championship game last year, he is an intelligent passer. He does all the right things. He really looks like a future superstar when you watch him play, especially in terms of his poise and his leadership. He has all the right qualities that you would want in a good, quiet star quarterback. That's what I see from Tugavaloa of Alabama. You got to wonder what team really jumps out to him, if maybe Miami's already got his name circled, what they think about him possibly coming up in the 2020 NFL Draft. One guy you don't really want to sleep on is Justin Herbert over at Oregon. This guy is built like a superstar quarterback. Six foot six, 225 pounds, completed 75% of his passes in 2019, 552 yards, six touchdowns, and zero interceptions. Again, Herbert has all the makings of an absolute superstar. 
That's Herbert's year so far, by the way, the 550 and the six touchdowns, zero picks. You got to think that Tua is going to get more recognition. Tua is going to be the name more people recognize. But Herbert may be the guy with the more long-term potential in terms of NFL teams. And again, with that size, he's built like if you build a quarterback, that's really how you would make someone. And I think Herbert may be the guy that comes in for a team that potentially may already have a starter, even if it's a young starter, and sits and waits. But when his time's called, he could be the major potential guy. Jake Fromm of Georgia is another guy who continues to look like he could rise up many people's boards as the year goes on. He's 6'2", 220. Some of the other quarterbacks in just 2020, you might be also talking about a guy like Jacob Eason from Washington who continues to impress. And hey, people already starting to get excited about Joe Burrow from LSU, 6'4", 216. He looked amazing against Texas. And just with that game alone, had a lot of teams thinking he could be a second or third round quarterback that could come into a team and sit and wait in the wings a little bit. When his time is called, he could really take over, similar to what's happened at LSU. Joe Burrow really rose up some boards this past weekend. Now look, let's just jump over. Let's just jump from the 2020 draft over to the 2021 draft because that's when the big name is available, and that's Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence is six foot five, 205 pounds, and by all indication is a future number one overall pick. The question is, how consistent does he stay for that amount of time? Again, he is not eligible for this year's draft. He is not eligible to be in the NFL draft until 2021. And technically, if you want to come back to school, you can stay until 2022. Don't think that's going to happen. But at the end of the day, Trevor Lawrence is by far one of the most guaranteed number one picks the NFL's had in years. From the things he does on the field, to his demeanor, to his decision-making, really could be the best quarterback prospect to enter the NFL. I mean, all the way since back, which it's kind of odd and feels a little bit weird to say now, but since Andrew Luck. Andrew Luck was the guy we talked about. Man, this guy is the number one pick. This guy is a superstar. There's no way he's not a superstar quarterback, which in Andrew Luck's defense, when playing, when healthy, he was almost as good as it gets. One of the most underrated guys even, when he was healthy. That was the problem with Andrew Luck, didn't stay healthy. Trevor Lawrence has got great size to him, and he makes good decisions. And really the scary part about Trevor Lawrence is I don't think we've seen the best of Trevor Lawrence yet. He still at times plays a little young. He still at times doesn't really make the long pass. He doesn't go for a lot of home run balls. I think once he gets a little bit more of that superstar confidence, which, you know, look, that's not always something you have to have, but I think once Trevor Lawrence gets a little bit more of that, Again, I think he might be the best quarterback prospect to enter the league in a long time, since really the early 2000s. I don't think we've seen one. I think we've seen some guys that have come out of nowhere and risen up the board. I don't think we've seen a guy that could last being the talk of the league for two years like Trevor Lawrence in a long amount of time. The thing is, though, who? how can you even plan for that? How can you plan for your team to not only not be good this year, but not be good next year? You look at a team like Miami, who continues to move pieces around, and you have to wonder, are they putting packages together? Are they trying to get three first-round picks to maybe move out of a top spot so they can go ahead and maybe get an offensive lineman, maybe get a receiver, maybe get a couple of defensive players, and then see what happens in 2021 and hope that they can get the number one pick with Trevor Lawrence and already have some good pieces around him? Because that's what I see with what Miami's doing. People are saying, man, this is a super rebuild. They're almost rebuilding the wrong way. Well, are they? Because they're not rebuilding for next year. They're rebuilding for two years from now. I think Miami is setting themselves up in the Trevor Lawrence sweepstakes. You hear a lot of people say to his name when you talk Miami, and I don't see that. I think they say, look, we got Josh Rosen. We're not sold on Josh Rosen, but we could be sold on him for two more years. Trevor Lawrence, I think, is the future Miami Dolphin quarterback. And I think that's what they're planning on and already starting to put the pieces in play. Some of the other guys that names we'll mention a lot more as we get closer to 2021. Sam Ellinger, who's played well at Texas. Justin Fields, maybe, is a guy who could really rise up some boards the more we see him at actually playing quarterback, 6'3", 223. Uh, JT Daniels, he got hurt, which was terrible to see for USC. But you got to think he's got potential to continue to climb up the boards and be a top-tier prospect. And let's not forget about Jalen Hurts at Oklahoma. He's got a lot of time to build that name up and become a star over the next few years. He could be a guy who's sort of almost like Lamar Jackson-ish in the things he could do at the next level. Maybe people will not want to play him at quarterback immediately, but we've seen it in Oklahoma. He's got a great arm, 
and is a little bit underrated as an overall quarterback. A lot of people have seen him as just a runner at Alabama. And I think he's excited to show people at Oklahoma that he is a full-on quarterback, which could make him a full-on NFL prospect. But again, you just see some of the things happening in the league, and you can already see teams starting to get excited about the future quarterbacks coming in over the next two years. Tua, Trevor Lawrence, Jake Fromm, Jacob Eason, all a few names we'll hear a lot more of. But just looking at Miami and the way they're tearing that team apart, I think they're gearing up to have a few first-round picks this year and just put some pieces in play. Linemen especially, they trade Tunsil. They can now draft a new lineman to get in there and give him a year to get set. And then they'll do everything they can, even if that's a negative connotation, do everything they can to make sure that the 6'5 super quarterback prospect, Trevor Lawrence, ends up spinning 2021 as a Miami Dolphin. Again, if you got any comments, you agree, you disagree, you just want to talk about something, be sure to let me know. Follow me and message me on Twitter at Cody underscore Gwen. Also, if you have the Anchor app or use Anchor on your computer, you can send a voice message to the show. You can also contact me in any other way you can figure out, and we can potentially talk about something, even get you on the show to talk about anything related to any sport. Appreciate everyone listening as that wraps things up for the victory formation and that wraps, wraps things up here. Almost messed up that last word. That's never good to do when you're recording. That'll wrap things up here. Don't forget to join us next week as we'll recap all the football action from this weekend. Recap what's next for the winners and losers of UFC Vancouver between Justin Gagey and Donald Cerrone. All that's coming up next week. Until then, though, thanks for listening to Next Man Up. I'm Cody Gwynn. We'll talk to you next time. You have just listened to the Next Man Up podcast with your host, Cody Gwynn. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or any platform you enjoy. And be sure to follow our host on Twitter at Cody underscore Gwim. Until next time, thanks for listening to Next Man Up.